on Wednesday this past week, I had a, a meeting at 2 p.m., 2 in the afternoon, uh, with a friend who uh, is not a member of this church, not engaged in this community. And so I showed up for that meeting, and uh, Jeannie, they looked at me, and they said, um, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. Like, I just walked up. And they go, no, I mean, are you okay? And I said, what do you mean? They said, how did you fall? And I said, I didn't fall. They said, well, how did you get that bruise right there on the front of your forehead? And I said, bruise? They said, yeah, you got a big purple spot right on the middle of your forehead. And I laughed. And then I looked at them and I said, "Um, I had some ashes there, but I wiped them off. And they put their head down and they were like, oh yeah, you're a minister. I forgot. (laughs) This past Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. And uh, on Ash Wednesday, we come together as a community and we have um, ash marked crosses scrubbed uh, across our foreheads. And that's relatively uh, a new ritual for us as Presbyterians. Um, Because on Ash Wednesday, we come together and we have those uh, ash mark crosses, but then it's accompanied with the words, um, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. Uh, Why is this important? It's important because our Lenten theme uh, this year is these days of dust, but if we're not all taking off from the same place about what it means to be dust, uh, we may miss the invitation to this season. If you were here on Wednesday, uh, this will be a refresher for you and for me. I just need to make sure we're all taking off from the same spot. Um, From dust you came and to dust you shall return um, comes to us from Genesis. Uh, It's the words, the last thing that God says in a conversation uh, with Adam and Eve after they've eaten of that piece of fruit. God says, from dust you came, and to dust you shall return. But we should remember that um, these words, remember you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Um, And they were not paired with actual ashes on foreheads until the 8th century. In fact, um, Pope Pope Gregory I was the first uh, person who uh, turned that scripture into an invitation to remember. Pope Gregory I lived from uh, the year 540, yeah, that's right, the year 540, and died somewhere in the early 600s. Um, And John Calvin called him the last great pope. Which is hilarious um, if you know that John Calvin was born a thousand years after Pope Gregory I. You're not laughing. Uh, John Calvin was basically saying a great pope comes along once every thousand years. But we Presbyterians, we didn't adopt this practice of like Ash Wednesday and ashes and all of that until like the 1970s. If you grew up in like the 1950s, 1960s, um, maybe you have parents or grandparents who did, um, they knew nothing of this ritual. It wasn't until the 70s when mainline denominations said, and this is a beautiful statement, and I quote, we want a way to embody our faith. We want a physical marker on our spiritual lives. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. But if we don't examine the ritual that we have taken on, it can, we can have all kinds of meaning that we didn't sign up for. It's sort of like, um, you know, Stephen and I, we like clothes, and Stephen and I will actually see each other uh, sometimes at the same place we buy clothes. And Stephen and I have this thing where if I, he shows up in a pair of clothes that I've never seen, I'm like, yo, where'd you get that? Um, and there's only been one time in my life that Stephen has asked me that, and I still remember it. But, Stephen, it would be like if we showed up at wherever place, um, or if you all were, like, scrolling on Instagram, and you saw that thing that you thought that you absolutely needed to have, 
And we're like, I got to have it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look killer in this. And then you actually try it on and it doesn't fit. Um, that would be like us taking Ash Wednesday from the 8th century and then feeling like, wait, this doesn't really fit in the Reformed tradition. And this is why. Uh, that command to remember you are dust and to dust you shall return is not a death sentence. It's not a sentence of judgment. It's actually not a sentence uh, that is supposed to make us feel guilty. Why? Walter Brueggemann's scholarship uh, has so transformed the way that I understand this text. He says there's two invitations to Genesis 3 and what God says to Adam and Eve. Uh, God says, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Brueggemann says the invitation for us in that text, as we see Adam and Eve, is this. God is returning Adam and Eve to their original form. Remember, God uh, took dust and breathed God's very breath, spirit, into that dust to form Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve lived out of their core identity as people of God in pursuit of trying to be like God eating fruit. So when God says you are dust and to dust you shall return, God is returning them to their original identity as being fully dependent upon God. So being dust and living days of dust invites us to ask the question, how am I living out of my true identity? How am I living grounded in who God has created me to be? The second invitation, Brueggemann says, and this just absolutely brought tears to my eyes. Brueggemann says the second invitation in that text is that God is looking upon Adam and Eve and seeing them as God first saw them when God created them. Let me put it to you this way. Raise your hand if um, you remember the time you first laid eyes on your children or your grandkids or your best friend's kids or your nieces or your nephews. Do you remember that? It's hard to look upon them now, even when they're driving you nuts, and not see that little beautiful creation. Brueggemann says, Lent and God looking upon Adam and Eve and saying, you are dust, is inviting us to consider how God first looks upon our lives. Have you ever thought about God's face when God first laid God's eyes upon you? I mean, the text says, uh, you were knit together in your mother's womb, for you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Have you ever stopped to consider how God looks upon your life right now? What an invitation. Brueggemann says, that's the second invitation to Lent, to reconsider these days of dust that we live and how God looks upon our lives. So uh, that's our invitation this season. How are we going to live these days of dust knowing that this is a returning to our original selves? How do we live this season knowing that God is so close to us, that God intends full life for us. How are we going to live 
these days of dust. That's what I mean by dust. And to be our guide, uh, we're going to turn to the parables. The parables um, are stories that Jesus tells. Uh, Some say that they are um, the pinnacle of Jesus's teaching. Parables, uh, thank God, were not solved by Jesus and then those uh, solutions handed down throughout the generations. No, parables, to quote Amy Jill Levine, are meant to break us open, to expose the belief systems we carry, the convictions that we carry, but don't act on all of our days. Parables are not meant to be solved. They are meant to ask the question, what do they do? And she says, all good parables do what all good faith does. It comforts the afflicted and it afflicts the comfortable. And so I want to say this before we turn to our first parable. It's really hard for me. Because most weeks, I'm like, I don't know. I gotta, uh, what is the point of this sermon? I, I, like, I need to solve this and hand it to you. Disclaimer at the beginning of this series, I'm working really hard not to solve any of this. My goal for today's sermon is to introduce us to what it may be like to break open a story and begin to ask all the questions it asks of us. Because I believe that is going to reveal and return us to our true identity dust. And it's going to reveal the ways in which God wants us to live with one another. We all on the same page with us? Cool. Um, Before uh, we read our scripture from uh, the Gospel of Luke this morning, I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to read the text, and then I'm going to retell that parable in modern-day language. I'm then going to lift up some of the questions that I think that text is asking. I am going to make a claim about what is disconnected in this parable And then I'm going to give you a story about where it looks like for these things to be reconnected. Cool? Let us pray. Awaken us, O God. Awaken us to your spirit that hovers here. Your spirit that hovers here in Founders Hall, just as she hovered over the waters of creation. Reach across the ages and breathe new life into these ancient words that they would be your word to us here and now. And breathe new life, O God, into the words of my mouth and into the meditations of all of our hearts that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God. For you are our rock. And you are our redeemer. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Jesus tells parables, and he lifts up ordinary events and ordinary happenings from those in the first century, and they could hear them in a particular way. We sometimes lose that in translation. So uh, we have the NRSV that is going to be up on the screen, but I'm going to read Amy Jill Levine's uh, interpretation of this text, and you'll notice just a couple differences. But listen now for the word of the Lord to all of us this day. And some person was wealthy, And he dressed in purple and linen, feasting daily, splendidly. And some poor person named Lazarus was lying by his gate, being covered with sores. 
Lazarus was wishing to be fed from the things falling from the table of the wealthy, but rather the dogs coming were licking his sores. And it happened that when he died, the poor man, and he was brought by the angels into the bosom of Abraham, and then also died the wealthy, and he was buried. And in the land of the dead, raising his eyes, being in torment, he sees Abraham from a distance and Lazarus in his bosom. And he himself, calling out, said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he might dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue, because I am suffering in this flame. And said, Abraham, child, do you remember that you received your good in your life and Lazarus, likewise his, the bad? And now he, and now here he is being comforted, but you are in pain. And in all these things between us and you, a great chasm stands, so that the ones wishing to cross over from here to you are not able, nor from there to us can one cross over. And he said, I ask of you, therefore, Father, so that you might send him, Lazarus, to the house of my father, for I have five brothers, so that he might witness to them in order that not will they come to this place of torment. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. I mean, let them listen to them. And he said, not Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead would come to them, then they would repent. And he said to him, If to Moses and to the prophets not do they listen, neither if someone from the dead would rise, would they be persuaded. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Remember, not what does it mean? What does it do? Pay attention to what that did to you. Pay attention to who you identified with. Pay attention to what judgment you made of the text. Ask yourself where God was in this. Pay attention to who you think you are. Pay attention to what you may have done or didn't do. There once was a rich man. He was so wealthy that the only clothes that he ever wore were handmade by Gucci, even his underwear. Every day he wore custom-made clothes by Gucci. Never did he wear the same outfit twice. Every meal he sat down to was an utter feast. Dinners were wagyu beef, foie gras, truffles. The wine were only Bordeaux's from the 50s. Dessert, 
only hand-churned ice cream. The man thought that this was normal. He thought he had earned it. He spent all of his days guaranteeing that none of that changed. But then in the same town, there was a, a man. His family could no longer take care of him. They had exhausted all of their means, and they could do no more for him. So they took him to this rich man's house, thinking he has resources, he can take care of him. They left him there. He was poor, but he was not a beggar. For you can be poor and not a beggar. You can be a beggar and not be poor. This poor man, he wore nothing but his wounds. No one noticed them, that is, other than the dogs. For they came not only to notice his wounds, but to lick them, to comfort them. The dogs in that poor man, who was not a beggar, waited day after day for scraps to come from the table, for they had nothing else to eat. One day that poor man died, no one noticed, except for the dogs and the angels. For they, came, for they came and carried him to the land of the dead. Soon thereafter, the rich man, he also died. He had a huge funeral. He was buried in a very important place. But he too ended up in the land of the dead. The poor man, his name was Lazarus, which in Hebrew means God help him. And the rich man, who had no name, ended up in the land of the dead with Lazarus, but they lived in a different way there. The rich man lived in the land of the dead in torment, Great suffering. He was thirsty. No one noticed him. He cried for help and no one heard. Lazarus, God help him, lived in the land of the dead with Abraham. Father Abraham kept him in his bosom, close to his heart. Father Abraham heard the rich man crying for help. Can I just get a drink of water from Lazarus? Turns out the rich man knew the poor man's name. Father Abraham said, No, no water for you. For you lived all of your days with water. 
Now you will live with none. Lazarus, God help him. He didn't speak. So the rich man said, uh, but I have some brothers. I have uh, family members. Will uh, you send Lazarus as a wake-up call to them that maybe they can feed and give water to those in need? I think they'll listen to Lazarus now. Abraham said, what good will Lazarus be? But they have all the prophets. They've had this good news all along. It will do no good just to turn up the volume. Friends, you know you can live all of your life thinking that you're only responsible to yourself and for yourself. You know uh, you can live all of your life thinking that you've earned it. That it's just easy. Everyone should be able to do it for themselves. You know you can live your life knowing the law up here and never letting it get to here. You know you can live your life carrying such pains and so many wounds that it feels like no one notices? Do you know that you can live your life with such pain? It feels like the only thing that cares is a dog. You know you can live all of your days crying out for help. And it feels like no one will listen You know you can live all of your days and that can quietly kill you. So much so that when others ask help of you, it's the last thing you would ever want to give them. You know you can live all of your days thinking that God's favor is just a commodity to be bought. that you are in a special place to ask for God to do something new for others. You know you can live all of your days thinking that you're only responsible for your family and not anybody else. You can. can. But I don't think that's what God wants. I don't know what this parable means to you, for it can mean everything. But I and many scholars believe this is not a story about the afterlife. But it is a parable about what it means when we live disconnected and disoriented lives apart from God. Simply put, when our hearts and our minds are not connected, 
We can live lives so far away from our true identity and the lives that God most wants us to live. There once was a five-year-old girl. And she went with her dad to the grocery store one day. It was Thanksgiving. They had put all of their items on the little conveyor belt. The cashier rang it all up. It was a hefty sum. It was Thanksgiving, after all. The cashier said, would you like to give $20 to ensure a family in need is fed? The father thought, we've spent too much already. But the five-year-old little girl said, yes, we would. So the cashier listened to her. The father just shrugged. The groceries were packed, they were put in the trunk, and the father said to the daughter on the way home, why did you say yes to the cashier? The daughter said, well, daddy, didn't you hear the cashier? She said we could feed a family for $20. Why wouldn't we do that? father was awestruck, and he asked his daughter, why is that important to you? The five-year-old daughter said, because, Dad, tikkun olam. The father asked his daughter, tikkun olam, what does that mean? The five-year-old daughter said, you know, Dad, tikkun olam, to repair the world. It's the name of my class at Temple Emmanuel. My class, we are meant to repair the world. That's why it's important. The father started to cry. Because in a five-year-old girl, he learned what it meant to live with heart and mind connected. Friends, we can live many different ways. God most wants for us to live lives that are connected, grounded in our identity as God in God, so that we might live this truth and know the life-giving path in all places. That's what this parable does to me. I wonder what the parable will continue to do for you. Let us pray. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Awaken us to our goodness, to our identity as dust, that we might see that we are connected to you and to all people in all times and places, and that our lives would reflect that good news, that our world 
might reflect that good news. And in all the ways that we don't root ourselves there, may we come to see that in those places, those places of death and darkness, so that we might know the difference. For we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.